This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Brian. Hi, Katie. So we're releasing a special podcast today about the Pittsburgh massacre that happened over the weekend. Yeah, and this really hit home for me, not just because I'm Jewish and have sat in a lot of synagogues on Shabbat over the years, but uh, just because this is not how I imagined our country or thought about the United States of America. As everyone must know by now, on Saturday morning, a gunman walked into a synagogue in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh called the Tree of Life. The congregants had been celebrating not just the Sabbath, but also a bris, which is a Jewish baby naming ceremony. The gunman shouted, all Jews must die, and opened fire, killing 11 people and injuring six. Authorities have found that his social media was filled with anti-Semitic hatred, and it appears he targeted this particular synagogue because they were participating in a Shabbat celebration of refugees in this country. This capped off a horrific week that also saw another murder motivated by hate, a white man who killed a black man and woman in a Kentucky grocery store, apparently because of their race. And then, of course, there were those pipe bombs mailed to many Democratic leaders, people in the media, including the Democratic philanthropist George Soros uh, and others. Brian and I like so many of you listening to this podcast, were heartbroken by the events of this past weekend and the cold-blooded, inhuman nature of this massacre. So we wanted to find out more about anti-Semitism in this country and what we might be able to do about it as citizens. So we asked Jonathan Greenblatt to come in. He is the CEO and National Director of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. And its mission is to, quote, fight the defamation of all the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment for all. 
So we're really pleased that he was able to come in and help us try to understand or process the events of Saturday morning. Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. This has been an extraordinarily difficult few days, I'm sure, for you and for so many people in this country, not only from the Jewish community, but from all Americans who are completely appalled by this act of violence, the deadliest shooting of Jews in this country in history, as we've said. So I know you've talked to members of this congregation. Mm -hmm. I know you've been speaking about this horrific event on various media outlets. So how are you processing all of this personally? Frankly, it's hard. I mean, this is, I've only been on the job a little over three years, and this is easily the most painful days. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, I remember working in the White House when the shooting happened in Newtown. And I remember it was still prepping to take this job. I was teaching at Wharton when the shooting happened in Charleston. And so those things affect you deeply because you're a human being and they're children and they're worshipers. To see this happen though is so troublesome because we have been saying loud and clear that something is going on. We have been literally ringing the bell because we've seen this rise in anti-Semitic incidents. We've seen this rise in hateful rhetoric. We've seen this rise in online cyber hate and It is shocking and appalling and upsetting to think about a man walking into a synagogue on a Saturday morning and gunning down elderly people where they sit and slaughtering two developmentally disabled men who are there to greet people when they walked in the synagogue and hand them prayer books. And to think that he, in cold blood, murdered a couple in their 80s who were married in that same room or they were butchered. The fact that a 97-year-old woman was gunned down you know, in the pews where she sat praying, it's hard to explain to your children you know, that which is unexplainable. So Jonathan, as you mentioned, the trend recently has not been good. The Mm -hmm. ADL found that the number of anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. rose 57% last year, which is the largest single-year increase on record. The number of established neo-Nazi groups is up. Twice as many hate-motivated murders were committed by white supremacists. What do you attribute all of this to? What happened in 2017 and now 2018 that's different than the years before? So it's a good question, Brian. I think there are a few things to keep in mind. I think the first thing is that, uh, as you noted, we've been tracking anti-Semitic incidents in the United States for 40 years. We've been measuring attitudes for more than 50 years. And anti-Semitism, unfortunately, has never gone away. It has been a persistent problem in this country. I think it's it's almost like a permanent aspect of the human condition. Now, the fact of the matter is when we started monitoring attitudes in the 60s, it was upwards of 30% of Americans held classic anti-Semitic views. When we lasted the most recent survey, 2016, that number was down to, I think, 12, 14%. So the number has dropped by more than half. Now, that being said, the anti-Semitic incidences were on a decline for almost 15 years. 
a gradual, steady decline. And then in 2016, they went up 34%, which was a lot. And it was weighted toward the second half of the year. And then, of course, in 2017, as you said, a 57% spike, the single largest we've ever seen. So I think there are a few different factors at work. I think, number one, clearly the public conversation, which is aided and abetted by the political environment, has changed. So previously, as I just noted, there were people with anti-Semitic views, but they did not feel emboldened. There were people who would consider extremists, but they did not feel energized. And there were people on the margins, right, or people with bad ideas who are on the margins, but they weren't able to move into the mainstream. But the political conversation in this country has changed. And you now see a kind of hate-filled rhetoric that spews out and that creates space for white supremacists and other sorts of bigots to move right in. And it's, it's undeniable, and we can talk about that leadership if you want, but I think the charged environment is part of it. I think the second factor is there is broadly felt anxiety and uncertainty. And we know this, right? Despite the economy, despite the performance of like the stock market, despite the record low unemployment rates, despite the growing GDP rates, you hear this when you talk to people out in America. They are unsure. Will the next generation earn as much as their parents? So this is all relevant because in an environment where the political system isn't delivering answers and there's widespread uncertainty, scapegoating can thrive. And there's room for those people with silver bullets, like blame the Jews, to get their message out there. And we've seen that pattern throughout history. It is not new. We've seen that movie before. But what's so worrisome is right now the conditions seem ripe for it. And the conditions seem ripe because of the third factor. So in addition to the political environment, in addition to, I think, the broad uncertainty, social media and these platforms have allowed those extremists to accelerate and amplify their reach in ways which previously were absolutely unimaginable. I mean, and Katie, you know this, right? I mean, you've been part of the media in this country for years. You could never find those people like on a a mainstream network. They could never get an audience, right? From the editors at the papers to those at the networks, they would never allow such individuals with such hateful ideas to see the light of day. Today, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, YouTube, and let alone other platforms like 4chan, Gab, 8chan, they've allowed them to, their hate to to grow with a velocity and at a volume which is unprecedented. Well, let's talk about the first and the third things that you've mentioned, and we'll table the overall anxiety for another conversation. The first is leadership. Do you believe that some of the blame lays squarely at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I mean, let's just go ahead and and address the elephant in the room, so to speak. So there are a few things here. Number one, I absolutely positively, and anyone who would deny this is sort of, I don't know, out to lunch. The president of the United States has the biggest microphone. He has the most significant platform. He's our commander in chief and the leader of the country. And we saw this during the campaign where his account would retweet the rhetoric of white supremacists and, and, and push out the kind of memes and images that were coming from some of the worst elements of society. Whether he understood what those meant, whether he intended to do that, hard to say, but undeniable that they started there and would spread. And then in office, from not remembering the Holocaust and a Holocaust Remembrance Day statement to 
the moment in Charlottesville when he equivocated on neo-Nazis and suggested there were fine people among both groups of protesters, if you want to call them protesters, to the events in Pittsburgh. You know, I'll tell you, at the ADL, we are not afraid to speak truth to power. And we have called this out again and again when candidate Trump or President Trump did it. And I think it's critical, it's crucial that it's not just about what you say in response to a tragedy, and he did hit some of the right notes. He did. It's more important how you create a climate where intolerance and hatred has no room. And that's what's so deeply worrying about this. You believe that his reaction to this was appropriate in terms of what he said? And how did you feel about his suggestion that perhaps there should be armed guards at synagogues? Yeah, I mean, a few thoughts. I think, number one, he did hit some of the right notes. There's no question about it. He called out anti-Semitism. We needed to hear that. The country needed to hear that. Like, you didn't know where he would land. He landed in the right place. With respect to armed guards and whatnot, look, I mean, every Jewish institution in America, Katie, from synagogues to schools to community centers to offices like those of the ADL, we all have security protocols. So my synagogue has an armed guard inside of it. This one didn't have armed guards, but just keep in mind that four armed, well-trained police officers were shot and wounded by this person. But the reality is, I want to go to synagogue to think about praying, not to worry about carrying a pistol. Like, that's not what worship in this country should be about. We've talked about President Trump, but it isn't just restricted to President Trump. Kevin McCarthy, who is going to be the leader of the Republicans in the House after this election, had a tweet up that said, we cannot allow Soros, Steyer, and Bloomberg to buy this election, buy in all caps, get out and vote Republican November 6th, picture of George Soros. Yeah. You know, my immediate reaction is, okay, Steyer is half Jewish, but what do these three people have in common? The use of the word by Soros emerging as this major boogeyman for Republicans. Has there been a concerted effort on the right to create a sort of a Jewish villain that some crazy people have latched onto? Well, I think there absolutely has been a concerted effort, um, effort among right-wing extremists for years to sort of spread this propaganda, these myths that there's Jewish control and that Jewish, the Rothschilds or the Soros or Jewish bankers are manipulating world events. Well, let's face it, that's nothing new, Jonathan. Exactly. That that has been out there for many, many years. I think what's frightening about this moment in time is that some of that fear-mongering conspiracy theories have somehow, again, moved out of the recesses of society into the center of the political and public conversation. So... Look, I don't know Kevin McCarthy, um, but I think, and I don't know some of the other people who've said things. And and let me be also clear with something. I don't agree with every donation that George Soros makes, but the continual, relentless references to his religion and the continual suggestion that he's buying or manipulating and the continual tying it to some broader conspiracy, this is sickening. I think it's the extreme right wing the white supremacists who've taken this and somehow been able to insert it. So what the, the what we need now, though, is this is bigger than any one person, whether it's whether it's Kevin McCarthy or it's President Trump or it's any other elected officials or, by the way, political candidates or other public figures. Everyone has a responsibility to stand up and stamp this out. And that that is what's different about this moment in time. 
Things are so polarized. Things seem so hot that people are unwilling to step forward and admit, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe this doesn't belong. And so that's what I would like to see. I don't really care how you vote. I care what you value, right? I don't really care what your party is. I care how you, if you stand up to prejudice. And that's what we really need to see now more than ever. Have you reached out to any of the people who have been employing language that you would deem uh, racist, anti-Semitic, et cetera? So we we certainly did the ADL, and I've done that. I've done it publicly. I've done it privately. Would you call uh, Kevin McCarthy and sh- talk absolutely, to him? Absolutely. Have you? Uh, I wouldn't talk about the nature of our conversations, but I've talked to a number of these individuals is what And I what do say. they say when you reach out and say, hey, please restrain yourselves? Some get it right away and pull back, and some more so than ever are in a state of denial and would attribute it to, you know, well, I, I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm good on Israel, or I'm not an anti-Semite. Some of my best friends are Jews. I hear those kinds of comments as well. Um, but look, I think it's up to us at the ADL to shine a light to make sure that we're using everything in our power to expose these. So people like a Kevin McCarthy, who I'm sure is not an anti-Semite, I'm certain of it, understand the implications of using that kind of rhetoric. It reminds me of what Andrew Gillum said in a yes. recent debate yes. about his opponent. I, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm not saying you're a racist. Racists think you're a racist. So similarly, anti-Semites think many of these people are anti-Semitic. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. President Trump has Jewish children and Jewish grandchildren. He is not an anti-Semite. But the anti-Semites think he is winking at them and nodding at them. And that's what's so troubling. Well, do you think so? Because when you use language like globalist and nationalist, when you fail to call out white supremacists, when your initial response to this incident is basically to blame the victims and say they needed more protection, it's not a big stretch to think, gosh, maybe he's actually sympathetic to these views. Well, look, I think the president is a paradox. I'll admit that I this is a riddle that I don't totally understand. I think by the fact that he works with Jews, he has Jews in his family. I mean, can you imagine for the first time in the history of our country, while we had the worst tragedy affecting the Jewish people, for the first time we have literally Jewish grandchildren running around the residence of the, of the White House. I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, and it's hard to reconcile these two entirely oppositional facts. So I don't think the president's an anti-Semite. I think the problem is the anti-Semites rejoice in some of the things that he says or Maybe more importantly, Brian, the things that he doesn't say. How can you say he's not an anti-Semite? Uh, yes, his his son-in-law is Jewish and his daughter converted and he does have Jewish grandchildren. But does that inoculate you? Well, here's what I would say, Katie. I don't know what's in his heart. I really don't. Well, is it purely political that he's trying to appeal to these people? I don't know what's in his heart, and I'm not a psychologist. I can't analyze it in his head. All I know is the impact of what he's doing. And we see the increase in the anti-Semitic incidents, and we see the the emboldenment of extremists, and we see moments like this one where if you look at the rhetoric in this guy's gab kind of feed, it was the same. some of the same kind of terms that Brian just said about globalists, about caravans, Soros-controlled caravans that suggest he's taking his cues from the political conversation. And that is just deeply disturbing. So how are you 100% confident that he doesn't have these views, that the president doesn't share these anti-Semitic views? Look, I don't, to be very frank, I spend my time not trying to, again, psychoanalyze the president. I spend my time literally on the ground trying to fight anti-Semitism and other forms of intolerance when they happen. So I will, as I've said before, and that during the campaign, and as I've said during his presidency, we want the president to take specific measures to stop anti-Semitism and other forms of intolerance. 
Right before this massacre at the synagogue, a number of Democrats and members of the media received these pipe bombs from a man who apparently was inspired by the president and his rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, it's a reminder that words have consequences. It's a reminder that rhetoric can unfortunately have, um, you know, again, unforeseen outcomes. And so when the president, or anyone else, by the way, labels the free press the enemy of the people, we shouldn't be surprised that some deranged people decide to take action. And again, there's always been deranged people. You have to be deranged to do something like that. But the problem is that there's an environment now where they feel emboldened, where they feel like they have a license to operate, and that's uh, dangerous. And we saw that play out last week. And they have a target list. More or less, yeah, more or less. You're not simply focused on anti-Semitism. You are focused on hate crimes in general at the ADL. 100%. And hate crimes against people of color have increased even more than those hate crimes against Jews, correct? I don't know all the specific numbers, you know, as in versus African-Americans or Latinos or LGBTQ or other forms of immigrants or Muslims. Literally, I don't have the numbers at my at the top of my head, but I will tell you this. Hate crimes are up. Intolerance is up. So we've always believed at the ADL that it's not just about standing up for us. It's also about standing up for others. We've been, my, my predecessors marched with Dr. King, fought for marriage equality, stood up for gender, against gender violence, and we'll continue to do it today. Let's move on and talk about the cyber aspect of this, uh, particularly a site called Gab, described as extremist-friendly, something the perpetrator of this crime was apparently on. You know, how many sites are there like this out there, Jonathan, and what can be done to monitor them or shut them down? I know Gab is, has now been shut down. It's been knocked off, and I heard from the uh, general counsel of GoDaddy uh, this morning who told me they were taking it offline. You know, they, they host the domain. So to try to understand this world of social media, there's sort of three tiers. There's the public web, there's the private web, and then there's the dark web. So the public web is like YouTube or Facebook or Google or Twitter, the things you can see that anyone can see. The private web are the password-protected zones, like on Reddit or on 4chan or 8chan or these other services that I'm guessing, Katie, I'll spend a lot of time, but they're very popular, and uh, you need to be you know, admitted in. And then the dark web, which is a part of the internet that you can't access you know, just with your Chrome browser, but where a lot of nefarious and very ugly activity happens. So Gab and 4chan and HN, these kinds of services, they're on the private web. And there are a lot of them. And the real issue is that hundreds of thousands of people, upwards of millions of people use these services. And a lot of it isn't necessarily, you know, the kind of trafficking in racist or extremist or anti-Semitic content. But there's enough of it that is, that is incredibly frightening. And I see this, you know, at the ADL, we opened a center for technology and society in Silicon Valley last year. Because we know that the front line in fighting hate, it's on Facebook. We know in order to tackle the kind of slander and stereotypes that I'm referring to, we need to be engaged with Twitter and YouTube and all these different platforms. Twitter says that it has a policy where if you spew hateful rhetoric or prejudiced rhetoric, you're going to get kicked off the platform. And yet we've seen people like Louis Farrakhan and others who put up anti-Semitic tweets and 
they're still there. The At least as of this recording, they're still there, and, and those people are allowed to continue to spread hate. What can be done to address the public web, these very large, powerful, rich platforms that, I don't know whether they allow it or they just can't stop all of the the hate that's, you know, that's going on? Well, look, I think it's it's a good question, Ryan, and I think there's no question that the large companies have a huge role to play here. I think part of it requires innovation and part of it requires sort of intervention. So in the innovation side, we need the companies to realize improving their products and making their platform safer for all users is not just because of the you know requests of stakeholder groups like the ADL, it's in the interest of their shareholders, right? Their stock price will suffer and usage will go down if users don't feel safe. So this is what I said, and I have an op-ed in the New York Times today about this. The best way to show these companies that they need to do something about it is to deactivate your account. Click off instead of clicking through. Would you have a campaign trying to urge people to do that? Because people just aren't going to do it, Jonathan, because, right. oh, this is a good idea. I mean, you have to have a, a re, well, an organized campaign. The way that we do it is we call attention. And so, you know, we've exposed anti-Semitic abuse on Twitter specifically against, you know, journalists. And when we did that in the summer of 16. I remember we remember did that? a podcast about we, this. We talked about it. It affected their share price. So why did it? Because because suddenly companies who are looking at them in terms as an M&A possibility thought, wait a second, there's a lot of liability on the platform. Maybe the platform is off brand. Maybe it won't be, again, consistent with the shareholder value interests. Is that the only way to communicate to these companies, threaten a, them and uh, well, financially? As a former executive, you know, I was a senior executive at Starbucks and I, I've worked as an executive at two publicly traded companies. I got to tell you, that absolutely makes a difference. On the other hand, I would also say that the employees and the users have a lot to say. And when companies operate outside of core values of things like decency and respect and tolerance, you're seeing it more and more. So petitions and campaigns can be useful. And the companies need to realize that we want to collaborate with them. And I I do want to say, although, Brian, as you were saying, Twitter has a lot of work to do. YouTube has a lot of work to do. Facebook has a lot of work to do. They have made progress. We have seen improvements in the product. They are better today than they were just a few years ago. Bad actors do get thrown off far more frequently today than they do a few years ago. Look at Alex Jones. So there are encouraging signs, but they need to do more. On Tuesday, the president is going to be traveling to Pittsburgh, according to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. What kind of reception will he get? And what advice would you give him as he goes into that community? Well, look, it's up to the local Jewish community and the families there to decide how, I mean, how they're going to respond to him. I don't really know. I think the emotions are very raw right now, based on everyone I've talked to. This community is uh, struggling. I think the the interfaith vigil last night was really important. But I got to tell you, I mean, they're suffering right now. So I don't know how they will react. He is the president. And so I think my advice to him would be to, with clarity and with consistency and in a way that is authentic, to denounce not just anti-Semitism, but all forms of sort of racism and white supremacy. I think he needs to speak in a clear voice. And I think, you know what, tomorrow this visit will be meaningful, not, not only because he's going to a place that suffered such tragedy, But if it demonstrates a pivot for the president, 
And he can shift from not just responding to tragedy, but demonstrating a commitment to respect going forward. In fact, there's a letter that was written to the president by an organization called Bend the Ark. Why don't you help our listeners understand what this organization is, and then I'll actually read a couple of lines from it. So Bend the Ark is a Jewish um, group focused on issues of social justice. They're domestically oriented. I know some of the leadership. They're very nice, good, well-meaning people, and they're focused on, you know, issues like immigration reform and uh, racism and institutional racism, and uh, I think they're very concerned about this. Well, this letter reads, For the past three years, your words and your policies have emboldened a growing white nationalist movement. You yourself called the murderer evil, but yesterday's violence is the direct culmination of your influence. President Trump, you are not welcome in Pittsburgh until you fully denounce white nationalism. President Trump, you're not welcome in Pittsburgh until you stop targeting and endangering all minorities. President Trump, you're not welcome in Pittsburgh until you cease your assault on immigrants and refugees. President Trump, you're not welcome in Pittsburgh until you commit yourself to compassionate democratic policies that recognize the dignity of all of us. Well, look, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the Jewish community of Pittsburgh, the congregation of Tree of Life, needs to decide whether he's welcome. And I don't think it's for Ben the Ark to decide that. If the president wants to go, I think what can make the visit meaningful is if he actually, truly, sincerely changes course and strikes a new tone and uses the kind of language that you would expect. Because look, it's one thing to be political, but it's another thing to be presidential. And it's one thing to, you know, he may have the formal title of leader, but he needs to accept the moral responsibility of leadership. So if he gets it right, it could be great, but um, yeah, I don't know. I I think, you know, Brian, I was thinking about, you know, presidential leadership is so important to healing when these horrific events happen whether it's President Obama shedding a tear over those children at Sandy Hook or other presidents who have time and time again really provided the the soothing balm to a, to a really hurting nation. Um, I hope that President Trump understands, as you said, Jonathan, his responsibility and the fact that his words are exceedingly important. I think about President George W. Bush going to the Islamic Center in Lower Manhattan shortly after 9-11 and saying very clearly at a fraught moment, we're not at war with the Islamic faith. You know, we're at war with terrorism. Yeah. And we're not going to target you. I mean, I think of President Reagan after the Challenger disaster. There's yeah. so many examples when this country needs a president to bring it together and turn down the temperature. And uh, it remains to be seen whether... This president is capable of that. Yeah. You know, so many people are at a loss as to what they can do. We're talking about what the president can do. We're talking about deactivating our Twitter accounts. But what can the average citizen do, Jonathan? Because I feel like the majority of Americans are really good people. Of course. And yet they're feeling so helpless and hopeless and in some ways lost. A friend of mine texted me, I no longer recognize my country. Yeah. I mean, it's heartbreaking to hear comments like that. Like it's soul crushing to think about people shot in synagogue on Shabbat. I think these are hard times because I don't think there's a silver bullet. You know, I don't think there's the one thing we can do. I think part of me says we have to hug our children tighter. I really feel like that. And part of me says we have to lock arms with others in need. And so everybody, you know, shows up in different ways. But this is a moment when I think we have to really recognize the other 
If you're a Christian, find that Jewish person. You know, if you're straight, find that gay person. If you're born here in this country, go find that immigrant or refugee and strike up a conversation and hold their hand and create some kind of communion with them. You know, I'm the, I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor, and I am the husband of a political refugee from Iran. And I think my grandfather and I think my in-laws and my wife sometimes have a hard time reconciling where we are today with the country that they came to. But I do think America's greatest strength is her ability to renew itself. So I think we will, I hope, I pray we will get through this. And I suspect as the head of the ADL, you'll agree with this, Jonathan, one thing that all of us can do, particularly those of us with uh, a big platform or a lot of followers like Katie has or politicians have, call out anti-Semitic or racist rhetoric as soon as you see it, as loudly as you possibly can. Brian, I entirely agree with that. But there's no doubt in my mind that all of us, you know, um, not just people in positions of authority, although they have a certain weight, but every single one of us has the ability to interrupt intolerance when it happens, whether it happens at the water cooler or over the dinner table or on the playing field or uh, anywhere else for that matter, or in your social media feed. Like none of us should tolerate intolerance. And when we roll our eyes and when we simply dismiss it, that's when it takes hold and spreads. So from the president to every one of us, we have we have, and we should try to stop hate when it happens. Jonathan Greenblatt, I'm so happy you came by today. Thank you so much, as thanks, always. Thanks for having me. We'd like to thank Jonathan Greenblatt for joining us on such short notice to talk about this tragedy. The team that produces this podcast and did a great job this week is producer Emma Morgenstern, associate producer Nora Ritchie, and audio engineer Jared O'Connell. Thank you to my assistant Beth Demaz, my social media producer Julia Lewis, Mark Phillips, who wrote our theme music. And of course, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Katie Couric. I'm spending a lot of time on Instagram talking about this tragedy and presenting biographies of the people who lost their lives. And you can reach out to Brian on Twitter. His handle is GoldsmithB. We'll be back on Thursday for our regularly scheduled episode with a look at the upcoming midterm elections. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.